0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to, uh, let's open up the Word of God and... You can start by opening up Genesis chapter 18, and I want to share some things. The title of today's message is A Man Called Didymus. We're going to be talking just a little bit about Thomas and continue to look at the days after Jesus' resurrection, and um, I believe that the Lord has some things to speak to us this morning. I know some things that he's been speaking to me, and I just want to share them with you. So let's open up uh, Genesis chapter 18 to begin with, really far away from where we're going, but we're going to get there at some point here. Genesis chapter 18, and let's uh, just pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. We come before you. We just honor you, Lord. I thank you that you've given us the Bible, that you've given us the scriptures, that you've given us uh, what is indeed the good book, Lord, that brings your life to us that brings your understanding, your revelation to us, Lord. I pray that you would fill our hearts with a divine revelation, that you would open our eyes so that we could see you, Lord. If these men who followed you, like Peter and Thomas and all these others, were not able to understand things without a revelation from above, then all the more so, Lord, we we cannot understand, we cannot know, we cannot follow unless you... Open our eyes, Lord, and you reveal your way to us, Lord. And I thank you that through the scripture, through your word, and by your Holy Spirit who dwells on the inside of us, we have everything that we need to, to be able to see you and to follow you, Lord, and to walk in your way. And I just pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts and mold our hearts to be conformed to your word and to your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter 18. And uh, I just want to read a couple of verses uh, to you. It's uh, in the story, sorry, in the story when the angels come and they tell Abraham uh, that uh, that the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah are going to be judged and they're going to be utterly destroyed because of their sin. Now we've talked a lot about this, and and uh, one thing I just want to remind you of is that in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, he, speaking about the cities where he's ministering, he says that it will be much more tolerable. There will be more mercy for Sodom in the day of judgment than there, even, than there will be for you. Because if Sodom had seen the miracles that you've seen, if Sodom had known what you know, then they would have repented and, and they would have turned back to the Lord, but they did not have the revelation that you have had. So we understand from the scripture that when there's great revelation, then there also comes great authority, and where there's great authority, there always is great responsibility. And I really want you to understand this morning that we have a great authority in the Holy Spirit. We've been given way more than we are accessing, way more than we are walking in, and we're going to see that this morning. But with that great authority, there's a great responsibility. And whether we walk in that authority, or we don't walk in that authority, we still bear the responsibility. Do You know in life, just think about this in business, or anywhere, or in your family, uh, you can delegate authority to someone else, but you cannot delegate responsibility to someone else. If you're responsible for it, and the person you delegated authority to blows it, well they might get fired, but you're gonna get fired too, or get in trouble too, because you had the ultimate responsibility. And so we have a responsibility before the Lord, but it's a joyous responsibility. It's a great thing to walk in the authority of the Holy Spirit and walk in what the Lord has has given to us. And we see this in Genesis chapter 18, that Abraham immediately steps into a place of authority, standing before God. And he does it very humbly. He does it very cautiously. And he asks the Lord, please don't get angry with me. I'm going to speak again. He doesn't have any presumption about it. But nonetheless, he stands before the face of God, and he intercedes for the city of Sodom, because in Sodom lives somebody that's very precious to him, his nephew, Lot, and the family of Lot. And so in Genesis chapter 18, when we look at this prayer, I'll just read verses 23 through 25, uh, Abraham, it says, came near, came near to the Lord, and said, will you indeed Sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And then he says to to the Lord, Far be it from you to do such a thing and slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And then the Lord agrees with him. He says, okay, if there's 50 righteous people found in the city of Sodom, I will spare the entire city of Sodom. But you're not going to judge who's righteous, Abraham, because you're not the Lord. I judge who's righteous. I judge who's in right relationship with me. And Abraham knows that there aren't 50 there. He's just getting started. And so he goes to 45, then he goes to 40, then he goes to 30, you know, and then he's down to 20, and the Lord says, okay, Abraham, and then he says, don't, don't get angry with me, Lord, but I'm going to speak one more time. If there are 10, if there's just a tiny little tithe of the city, just 10 people in this city who are righteous before you, they're in right relationship with you, then will you spare the whole city? And the Lord says, then I will do it also for 10. Now, I've preached this before, but if you go through the family of Lot and count up the number of people in his family, including his sons-in-laws. There were actually at least 10 people in Lot's family, and which is a whole nother sermon in itself, but it really shows us that when we train up our children and we walk in righteousness in our family, and as husbands and wives we walk together in the way of the Lord, that we can bring salvation to our entire city. our entire country that the little things matter the remnant matters that's why there's such a huge emphasis put in the scripture on honoring your father and your mother that's the first commandment that the lord gave that has a promise that it will be well with you and you will live long on this earth and then on the other side that fathers should not provoke their children to wrath they shouldn't uh you know push their children over the edge even if their kids are doing something wrong that fathers need to know the limits of what they can handle. That, that, that applies to mothers also. That husbands need to love their wives the way Christ loves the church. That wives need to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ. And all these things we know and they're so simple, but boy, are they ever the biggest challenges to our flesh. You know, we can just walk in all this righteousness, but what really matters is the righteousness we have at home, and and we're all growing in that, (laughs) and none of us are perfect in in those things, and our lives on this earth is supposed to be a time of growth, it's like when you're going to school, you know, we haven't graduated yet, and I'm not in a big hurry to graduate, because that means I'm already not on this earth anymore, I've gone on to heaven, I actually want to hold out until Jesus comes back, if that's his will, I would just personally love that. So, Abraham turns to God like that, and he prays these things. But there's something in here I want to just share real quickly that I saw in this scripture this week, and I'd never seen it before. Um, It's it's really quite interesting. I want you to notice that Abraham prays to God, and he does not ask that God would destroy Sodom but spare Lot. That is what ends up happening. That's not what his prayer is. Because there's a principle you see here, that you can see throughout Scripture that the righteous who live in Sodom, they could not be saved. They could not be spared if they stayed in Sodom. They had to get out. And God said, I'll, do, I'll, I'll let it continue on if there are ten righteous people. Now, it wouldn't have continued on forever. Eventually, Sodom would have fell, and all kingdoms do eventually. You'll remember Nineveh, that God sends Jonah to uh, prophesy uh, to the king of Nineveh and tell them that God's going to destroy the entire city. And then God does not do it. God changes his mind because they repent. And uh, Jonah's real upset about that. Well, eventually, as you read through Scripture, that kingdom is destroyed. It just wasn't destroyed on, on that day. But it's really interesting that, because sometimes I think we have this idea That, uh, you know, God could destroy um, Sodom, and I'm living in Sodom, and somehow, magically, I wouldn't be destroyed together with Sodom. But that's not the case. If they don't get out of Sodom, then they will be destroyed. Look at chapter 19, verse 22. um, I'm just going to read one verse, but you look at it in the whole context. The angels are trying to get Lot to leave the city to take his family out of the city. And it says in verse 22, hurry, escape, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And therefore the name of the town where he was supposed to escape to is Zoar. But if you'll read the entire passage, you'll see that Lot was very hesitant about leaving the city. Have you ever been hesitant about taking the next step that God has for you? Have you ever experienced a double-mindedness where one day you're up and the next day you're down and you just don't really know what it is God wants for your life, but somewhere if you just get quiet before the Lord, down on the inside, you do know, but you just don't have the guts to do it. You're just hesitant about doing it because you don't know what's going to be on the other side, and it's pretty comfortable where you are, and you know one thing about about human nature is we may be miserable but if we're comfortably miserable miserable we would tend to rather stay comfortably miserable than discom- get into some area of discomfort so that things would be better in our lives and so most people as who was it? emerson the poet famously said once that that they live lives of quiet desperation they're just not happy in life, but they're comfortable not being happy. And God has so much more for us. So it was difficult for Lot to get out of there. It was difficult for him to make up his mind. And that's really what we live in today. The Bible tells us to leave Babylon, to get out of Babylon, that come out of her, my people. That obviously cannot mean that every Christian in America can physically leave the United States of America because it's just not even possible. But it's a spiritual coming out. It's a a mindset, exactly. It's a desire to, to live in tents like Abraham lives in tents. Abraham wept over Sodom, if you read the story. It scared him. It caused him to flee. He was really scared when this actually happened. But what he did not do ever do was build himself a home in Sodom and link his future to the future of Sodom. His future was linked to the kingdom of God, and we are citizens of that kingdom. So now go with me to Joshua chapter 24. We're going to be talking about double-mindedness today. Joshua chapter 24. It's the very last chapter of Joshua. It's right before Joshua dies. It's his final words that he speaks to Israel, and they're very famous words that you know in Joshua 24, verse 14 Uh, He stands before the people and he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Worship Him in the Spirit. Worship Him from all of your heart. Worship Him in truth. That'll be a real relationship with Him. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. Because as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. And yes, mammon can be understood as wealth, but mammon was actually a god of the Canaanites. You cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve the riches of this world and serve God. You have to make a choice. Everybody has to make that choice. So he says to them, make this choice. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Don't let it be fake. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, you see the free choice that we have here. Sometimes people don't understand that we have a choice to make. I heard one preacher say one time, and I always remembered it, that uh, election, uh, you know, there's a doctrine of election that God has voted for us and the devil's voted against us and my voice decides where the election is going to go. Now, God has chosen us. He's called us out. But we have to make a choice. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. I like the word today there because I can tell you from walking it out, it's a daily choice. You make a choice once, but then you keep making that choice every single day. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, you see, he makes a decision for his house. As for me and my house, he's standing in his place of authority, he's taking responsibility for his family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then in verse 19, it says, they, they answer and say, yeah, we want to serve the Lord. And Joshua says to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. I love that we make it so easy for people to, to get saved sometimes. I mean, but really, he's saying, no, I'm very serious. This is not going to be easy. It will not be easy for you. You're not going to be able to do it. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. I mean, what he's doing here is challenging them. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. Well, that doesn't sound like Bible, does it? We'll keep reading. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after. He has done good to you. We don't want to hear that side of God. <laughs> the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves. Jesus said, you are my witnesses that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And you know, you go right into the book of Judges and you find out very quickly, they couldn't do what they said they were going to do. But we have a comforter. His name is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I will send him to live inside of you, to dwell in you, and he will come upon you and there will be a revelation, a divine revelation. We're going to look in just a couple of minutes about how Thomas got that, and it will change your life so that you can actually serve the Lord when you serve him in the spirit, when you worship him in the spirit and in truth. Now go with me over to 1st Kings chapter 18. 1st Kings chapter 18. It's from the story of Elijah. This is just a theme that runs through scripture. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God with a divided mind and with a divided heart. You have to make a decision. If you're serving God half-heartedly, then indeed you are not serving the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read in verse 20: So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel, because Elijah has thrown down the gauntlet and said, I'm going to meet the prophets up on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people. There's a huge crowd of Israelites gathered there. If you don't know the context, read it all. But they've been serving under the boot of Jezebel, and Ahab is their king, but he's really not in charge. His wicked sorcery wife is in charge, Jezebel. It's where you get all this in the New Testament also about Jezebel. And you hear about Jezebel today. You know, I mean, it's not a good name because of this lady. She's the one that, that 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 is the original Jezebel here. And uh Elijah's very bold to stand up against her and against Ahab, and they have great power in the kingdom. But Elijah knows the authority that he has in the Lord. And he steps into that place of authority. And it says in verse 21, in the responsibility he has as God's prophet to Israel, in verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and he said, it's the same thing Joshua said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? In the Hebrew, it says literally, how long will you limp on both crutches? Okay, it doesn't translate very well into English. So all all translations are going to say this. But it's, it's a metaphor for having a divided heart, for having a divided mind. You know, if you've ever had to limp, you can limp on one crutch. But try having both legs broken and walking on crutches. You need a wheelchair for that. They didn't have wheelchairs back then. And the metaphor is this. You cannot walk straight if you're trying to do it with both of these crutches. Have you ever had on your... A car, one of this is probably not the best example because you can go for a while like that. But Have you ever seen somebody driving down the road and they put one of those little tiny spare tires on their car? And you're supposed to just drive and go get your car fixed. But they embarrassingly keep driving down the road with a little tiny spare tire on their car. And you're like, that looks pretty strange. And it is pretty strange. And not really very good for your car really that safe either. The little tiny tire isn't for that. And so you've got these people that are limping on both crutches. but They've got one side that does this, and on the other side they do that. And so he says to them, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Because when you're going in two different directions, what are you really doing? You're not going anywhere, right? (laughs) Because if you're going in two different directions, you're not really going anywhere. So you're hesitating between two opinions. You're just staying in the same place going around in circles, right? In Russian, there's a a famous uh, fable, one of those fables that teaches you something like Aesop's Fables, and it's about a crawdad, that's what we call them in Oklahoma, maybe you call them crayfish, I don't know. A crawdad and a swan and a pike, the fish, pike, and each one of them are trying to pull this load that they've been, given the responsibility to pull somewhere, so the swan is trying to fly up with it, the crawdad is pulling back on it, and the pike is swimming strongly forward with it, and the point of the whole uh, 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 moral of the whole fable is that they're not getting anything done, and when we are working together with each other, everybody has their own different direction they're going in, that we're not getting anything done. And when a family's like that, a family's staying in one place, when a church is like that, The church is just staying in one place. But if you're staying in one place, you're just sinking. You know, you're just, you're not making any progress. Jesus is always on the move. When you read about Jesus's life in the gospels, he's always going from one place to the other. And they're actually having a hard time keeping up with him. Remember those guys, they say to Jesus, you know, one of them says, hey, I want to follow you, but I got to go home and bury my father first. And Jesus says, if you let the dead bury the dead, if you want to follow me, you better follow me now. Because I'm not going to be in the same spot when you come back after your dad's funeral. You've got to stay up with Jesus. You've got to be with Jesus. You've got to see where he is. So he says, how long will you hesitate between these two opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. You decide. Who's your God? But the people did not answer him a word. I want you to pay attention to that. The people did not answer him a word. Go over to chapter 19 of 1 Kings. In chapter 19, go home and read all of this in context. Um, Elijah up on that mountain on Carmel, he built an altar to the Lord out of 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they put this ox up on the altar and they divided it up, the, the meat to offer it as a sacrifice. And he dug a huge trench around the altar and they came in and three different times they poured four Uh, gigantic pitchers of water on top of that ox, uh, which would be 12 pitchers of water, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And all the meat was soaked in water, the wood was soaked in water, and the trench was filled up with water. And he called to the Lord, and the fire of of God came down from heaven and devoured everything, and it says, licked up all the water also. It burned up everything completely. So that's a very hot and a very powerful fire that came down from heaven. And if you know the story, the prophets of Baal tried all day long to get Baal to do that. And Baal didn't do anything. And Elijah famously taunts them and makes fun of them. Well, maybe your God's gone to the toilet right now. I mean, it's literally what he's saying. Maybe he stepped out right now. Maybe your God fell asleep. Why don't you shout a little bit louder and see if you can wake him up? And they start cutting themselves By the way, cutting yourselves is something of idolatry. It's something that comes from Satan. And they begin to cut themselves and let the blood flow out. They do all their things. They dance around, and nothing happens all day long. And Elijah's just loving it. He's eating it up. And then after the fire comes down, he has the people come with swords, and he kills all the prophets of Baal. He kills them all. So this is a really bold prophet, right? Well... Then Eli- then Jezebel sends him a little message, and the little message says this, I heard what you did to my prophets, and tomorrow at this time I will do the same to you. And Elijah loses it. I mean, he's just human. That's why the scripture says it's our uh, National Day of Prayer theme there, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, right? But if you read that scripture, it's saying Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. He had the same problems we have. And Elijah gets super depressed. That's what we would say. And he's just, he just lost everything. He's just ready to give up. Kill me, Lord. Take me, Lord. I can't serve you anymore. I'm done with this. I'm over. And if you look at verse 9, the Lord comes to him and says, asks him a very important question. And I want, just want you to listen to the Lord today. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is asking you this question also. What are you doing here, Elijah? What? are you doing here? And if you read the context of this, the Lord asked him that twice. And he goes up into this mountain, and as he's up in the mountain, there's a, uh, most of you know this story, there's a great strong wind, it's breaking the mountain apart. Um, The other day, Frank and Sasha and I were in the canyon, looking at the river, seeing if we could fish there yet, and three huge rocks came down from the face of that thing, (laughs) right into the water. I left. Don't go fishing. Don't go fishing in the canyon right now. Let's wait a little while. Just letting you know. But that's what Elijah sees. And then it says, and God was not in that strong wind. And then there's this earthquake and it says, and God's not in that earthquake. But then there comes in my uh, Bible because it's getting real literal with the translation here. it, It says a gentle the sound of a gentle blowing. I like it better how it says in the King James that it was This this gentle and quiet voice. The word sound means voice. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit, and it is a blowing. And you know that voice, and the Lord is in that voice. And when he gets all calmed down, he stops being all depressed, he just finally is relaxed before God. God repeats the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Go. You need to go. And at the end of this thing, God says to him, You told me that you were all alone here, but you are not all alone. I have 7,000 other people right here who have not bowed their knee to Baal, and they have not kissed the lips of Baal. I have a remnant. I have more people. A friend of mine was sharing that scripture with me the other day, and he said something I honestly had never really noticed there before, that... When they're up on Mount Carmel, it says all the people answer not a word. So you kind of have this silent majority thing. They didn't say anything then. You wish they would have spoke up. Sometimes we look at our kids, we look at our youth, we look at each other, and we think, well, they're not really very good Christians. They don't seem like they have very much on the inside of them. I don't think they really know the Lord, or they just don't seem strong enough for God, or something like that. You don't, you personally, I personally don't know what's in another person like Jesus does. Out of that crowd of people that was completely silent and wouldn't answer Elijah, they would not say, yes, we want to serve God instead of Baal. Out of that crowd, there were actually 7,000 who were in their heart. They were saying, yes, I want to serve God, but I'm really afraid. But now the time has come that God's going to bring out that remnant. I believe and I hope that we have a remnant in Yarrington, Nevada, that we have a remnant in the United States of America, that we have a remnant and that there is salvation for for our nation, for this country. But that salvation will not come if we remain double-minded, if we continue to walk on these two different uh, crutches. So now go with me over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. These are the days after the resurrection. It says in John 20, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, it's John 20, 19, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus comes, he stands in their midst, he says, Peace be with you. Shalom Alechim. Very common greeting today in Israel. He would have spoken this to them probably just like that, but with a much better accent. He says, Peace be with you. He places God's shalom on them. But like many things that we say uh, today, you know, we say, Hello hello, and we don't even think that that means health to you, and we don't think of the words we're using. We just use them as common greetings. You know, how are you, and all those kinds of things. But when Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak the way we speak. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he's placing God's peace on them, and they really need that peace because it says the doors were shut because of the fear of the Jews. Every church that I know has security protocols today, and we do too. That's why the security team wants to make sure, that, you know, you've got crash bars, you can get out if something happens. But you can't just come into the church unless you come through the back door. Hopefully you never think about that when you're here. Hopefully you just think about this is a nice secure place and you're happy there's security people out there. But they work on that so that we feel secure in this place. And you think, well, nothing could ever happen in Yarrington, Nevada, but you, know, you already know that that's not true. You know, 40 years ago you might think that that couldn't happen, but you know that it's not true today. So, Closing the doors is something you do for security. And these guys are genuinely afraid, and they're not afraid because they're a bunch of babies. They have a reason to be afraid. Jesus just got crucified, and they're next. And so they've got the doors closed for security, for a very good reason. And Jesus comes into their midst. He doesn't open the door. This is really cool. I can't wait to get a resurrected body to see how this works. I'm kind of hoping I can fly and play the piano, too. But just coming into a room, Jesus is just there, okay? And he's in a material, physical body, but he just appears in the room. He says, I'm not a ghost. We already looked at that. And the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is a very powerful statement. First of all, I want you to notice that when he puts his peace on them. God's peace on them. He also says to them, as the father sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, you're not going to be able to stay in these locked doors. You're going to have to go. We have a mission to accomplish. You need to be prepared for that. You're not going to just stay here hiding out. God's peace is not the way the world gives peace. Jesus says, My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives peace. So here's how the world gives peace. For the world, peace means the absence of war. When there's not war, we call that peace. That's not the same with God. He's the Lord of hosts. There is always spiritual war going on. But you have peace in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the war. And when the world gives peace, it doesn't always last for very long. You know, it it might last a generation, but if you look at the history of the world, just look at the history of your own life. There's just war after war after war. So that's a different kind of peace. That's not what shalom is. That's not God's peace. Jesus gives them peace, but the peace is the ability to go and fight the battle. The peace is is the armament that you need to go out and do what God has called you to do And not halt between two different opinions. Not walk on these two different crutches at the same time. So he gives them this peace. And then he empowers them with this peace. By breathing on them. Just like the Father. Just like the Lord breathed into the the nostrils of Adam. The breath of life. And he became a living soul. And so Jesus breathes on them. And says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week. This is, they're what we would usually call born again. They receive the Holy Spirit living on the inside of them. They're changed. They become new creations. They receive the Holy Spirit at that moment in time. And then notice that when he gives them the authority, when he gives them this revelation, when he pours out his Holy Spirit upon them, then they have a great authority and a great responsibility that goes with it to accomplish the mission. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. He doesn't say, if you ask the Father to forgive their sins, their sins will be forgiven them. He says, if you forgive their sins, their sins will be forgiven them. Remember what Peter and John said to the man who was lame, who was asking for money. And they said, silver and gold, have we none? We don't have any money to give you, but such as we have, we now give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. They didn't say, we're going to pray and ask God to heal you. And that's okay to say that. I'm not saying it's wrong to say that, but look at the level of authority they moved into. They didn't ask God about it even because why ask him? He already gave them that authority. They went out and said, walk in the name of Jesus. Now, I want you to know that there were thousands of people like this man that they could have said that to. They didn't just go around, you know, like with a Holy Spirit machine gun, just shooting all this stuff out all the time. Do you understand what I'm saying? They were being led by the Spirit. Why did they say it to that man at that moment at that time? And it worked. Because that's what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do. Okay? That was where they turned up, and the Holy Spirit said, do that. And they did that. Okay? I'm not talking about some presumption. Uh, I'm not talking about some kind of pride. But walking in that authority. And that meant they had to take on the responsibility for that. Because they paid dearly for healing that man. They went to jail for that. And they knew they could be in trouble. But you never see them hiding out again after the Holy Spirit comes on them. They've made a choice whom they will serve. And they have decided that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, Uh, I I love uh, the story of Thomas. And we're going to read a couple of verses here now. Because if that story had not been put in there by John, you might think these were supermen, these disciples. And I could never do that. But John, by the Holy Spirit, gives us the story of Thomas. And look at verse 24. And we can really see ourselves in him, I think. I know I can. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. He's a man called Didymus. Now, the name Thomas comes from the Hebrew, and it means a twin, okay? And the name Didymus is Greek, and it means a twin. And the reason why John says who was called Didymus is because the readers that are reading his book read Greek, and they don't know Hebrew. So he wants to make sure they understand that the name Thomas means twin. There's it. All kinds of crazy theories about who Thomas's twin was, including he's the twin brother of Jesus, all kinds of silly things out there that you should not pay any attention to because they really don't, that's really not the point. The point isn't that he had a twin brother or a twin sister, okay? The point is, and you see this in John, is that he is a twin. He is twain, if you remember that older English word. He's divided into two, he's walking on two crutches. He's double-minded. He has a divided heart. We call him Doubting Thomas. He can't make up his mind what's going to happen. And so he's called Thomas in the Scripture. Most of these guys had nicknames, by the way. You know, Peter's a nickname, Paul's a nickname. I mean, all these names are names they had, so so that's what his nickname is. They call him Thomas. They call him Didymus. Look with me at, uh, well, let me finish reading this, verse 24 and 25. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, oh, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails. Again, he's not talking about scars. He's saying, I'm gonna see the holes. There's no way that he would have scars by now, you know, a week and a half later. I wanna see the holes in his hand. Unless I see the, in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails. It's actually down here. Put my finger into the place of the nails. I want to stick my finger all the way through his wrist. Uh, that's the only way I'll know it for sure. And I want to put my hand into his side. Remember, a a, seer, a a spear had pierced his side all the way to his heart. I want to put my hand all the way into that hole that would be left there from that spear. I will not believe is what he says. Now, Thomas, I, I think, because I'm going to be honest, I've been in that position before, and if you'll be honest, you have too. I think Thomas thinks he's really cool for what he just said. I'll show God. You know, dang, no way. Even if he raised from the dead, he's not going to have those holes or anything like that. You know, and unless I can stick my hand all the way in there, I'm not going to believe. And in, in, in a sense, a very real sense, he's casting doubt on the faith of all these other people. And they've received the Holy Spirit. I don't really know how they felt that day. <laughs> but he's casting doubt on all that. He's saying, you're all crazy. You're all nuts. There's no way that this is true. Now look at verse 26. After eight days. So if our Easter was the same Sunday that Jesus raised from the dead, this would be like last Monday. Okay? So this is a Monday. After eight days, his disciples were in again inside. And Thomas with them. And Jesus comes. The doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, third time, peace be with you. Then he says to Thomas, so he knows what's going on. He's the Lord. Reach here with your finger. Literally in the Greek it says, carry your finger over here. It's very almost, not rude, but very straightforward uh, speech that Jesus is making here. He says, Carry your finger over here and see my hands. And then he says, reach here your hand and put it into my side. In the Greek, it says, thrust your hand into my side. It's a movement uh, like throwing a ball. Thrust your hand into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. I'll stop there for just a minute. Look with me at James chapter 4. James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, and in verse 6, it says that God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, or it is written, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now go with me to chapter 1 of James real quick. Twice, James uses this phrase, double-minded. In chapter 4, he gives us the cure for double-mindedness. And the cure is really simple. Humble yourselves. Take your finger, stick it in my hands, thrust your hand into my side if that's what you need. But humble yourself and just submit to my word. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Listen to me. And that humility will bring you to a place where I can truly exalt you, where I can truly pour my grace out on you, and I can truly bless you. Because if you remain double-minded, then your hands are not cleansed, and you cannot stand in the presence of God. The cleansing of the hands speaks of being able to enter the presence of the Lord. So over in James chapter 1, he uses the same word, double-minded. And by the way, it's only used twice in the Scripture, in James. In James chapter 1, it says in verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know where you're going and you don't know what to do, If I asked you to raise your hand if you're in that position today, I'll bet every person would raise their hand. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. Without reproach means he's not going to make you feel small or make fun of you. Oh, you big baby, here's your wisdom. He He doesn't give the way that we give. He gives without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. And this metaphor that James gives here describes for us what doubting is. Okay, It's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's a double-minded man, and a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So the word double-minded in the Greek is de And it doesn't really mean technically maybe double-minded. That's a great translation, by the way, but it's double-souled. The psyche is our soul. It's where we get like psychology, psychiatry, and all that stuff from. It means to be double-souled. And he uses it twice in James. And we've seen it uh, with Elijah, and we've seen it with Joshua, and we see it with Lot back in the story of Sodom, and it's throughout Scripture. A person who has a double soul or a double mind, that means that his soul is complicated. God, you know, you know what complicated means? It's complicated. It's actually not. It's complicated, is when things are woven together, and they're complicated. <laughs> and it's hard to untie it, like the hose when you were working in the garden or your shoelace or something else. You don't want to destroy it. You'd like for it to be untied. I mean, it's easy to untie if you just take a knife and cut right through it, but then it's destroyed. And you can't do that to your soul. But people do that to their souls because it's so complicated. They just give up. But When Jesus comes, he brings simplicity. He unties all the knots. He lays it all out for us. Everything's clear and simple. So a double-minded soul is a complicated soul. And the Lord wants to give us a simple soul. The simple soul of a child. He says to have the faith of a little child. You don't have to understand everything. You just do what he's saying to do. You just follow where he's saying to go. And trust that some things are a need-to-know basis, and when you need to know, he's going to let you know. But you just keep following him. But that problem of our heart's complication, when we have a double soul, that means, think about this, that, that's like saying we have a double heart. But if you're saying a double heart, the way we say it in English is this, half a heart. A double heart, if you're doing something with double-mindedness, you're doing it half-heartedly. Okay? You're doing it half-heartedly. And that's really what James is saying and what the Holy Spirit is indicating here. That if you're serving the Lord half-heartedly, you're really not serving the Lord. You're not really moving anywhere. And you're unstable in all your ways. And you keep wondering, why do you have to keep building the house over and over again every time the storms come? Because you keep building on the same sand. Right there next to you is a rock of hearing the word of the Lord and doing the word of the Lord, why don't you start building on that rock? And maybe it's just going to be some humble little shack compared to the mansion you had on the sand, but it's not going to fall down. You're going to be safe. You're going to have a place that you can grow, that you can prosper, and you'll be surprised how great that little shack will turn into a mansion pretty soon because you're building that upon a rock. So when you're serving the Lord half-heartedly, then you're not really serving the Lord. And the Lord said that from the very beginning. You know, the two great commandments. When they asked Jesus about this, he confirmed it. That even in, in the ancient times, before Jesus, they, they said this. The two great commandments. Number one, to love the Lord your God with half of your heart, with half of your mind, sometimes no. So if you're not really loving him if I'm not loving him with all of my heart. And then to extend that love to your neighbor as yourself. So I'm not really loving my neighbor if I'm not loving with all my heart. And I think I used this phrase in the last sermon and the one before. uh, It was a quote from a book, doesn't matter what book, but that you can love all of humanity but hate people. That's the whole woke liberal agenda day. And we just love all of humanity. We love everybody, but we hate people. I can't stand to be with one person. You can can love all of the world, oh, God is love, but I hate my wife, or I hate my kids, or I hate my dad, or I hate this person. Just start with the people you actually know and begin to extend the love of God to them. And that all begins with loving him with all of your heart. Well, how do I do that? Well, it's too simple. I don't want to tell you that I'll tell you. Listen to his word and do it. Just Listen and do it. He gives us these commands, these, these things, not, not because he wants to make our lives miserable, but be, if you're a guy like I'm a guy and do things like I do, I always want to put one of those things together before I read the instructions. Do you know what I'm talking about? And no matter how many times I fail, I'm always like, I can do this without the instruction book. <laughs> and always at the end, there's something left over. And you always end up having to go back and read the instructions. Yeah. So if God wants us to follow these things because it's really the instructions for a happy life, for a successful life, to be blessed by him. And he says to, to, to kids, and we're all still kids. My parents are in heaven, but I believe that that command still remains. Kevin, you honor your father and mother. It, it's not about obeying them anymore because I'm grown up. I have my own family, and they're in heaven. They're not here to tell me what to do anyway. Clean your room, Kevin, or something like that. But I can, still, I can still hear my mom's voice in my head. I can still sometimes in life see my mom wouldn't be happy with that. My attitude is wrong. I'm not doing the way she taught me to do or something like that. And so I can honor them in my life. And you know, when I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, every single time, we go to the graveyard, we put flowers there. You know, I, I know they're not there, but their bodies are buried there. And in my heart, I still want to honor them. And if you have an attitude of honoring your father, well, my my parents are lousy. They weren't like your parents. Well, I've known kids who had parents way worse than any kid in here has parents. We used to work with kids like that from the street for many, many years. And the very first thing we always taught them is don't talk bad about your parents. I don't want to hear it. I don't care if your parents were pimping you on the street, and they were. I don't care if your parents, you know, are in a burned out house with no furniture and they've already don't have even have money left for the drugs they used to take and they're drinking windshield wiper fluid to get high and that was that that was real if you speak evil of them you know you can tell us what's going on in their lives if we get that you know you got to be honest about things but if you don't honor the people that brought you into this earth then you're bringing that same curse on yourself because honor stops the curse when you bless, you get blessed. So it's just like this simple thing that, that God put right there in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. And if you'll do that, even if your parents aren't always fair, and we're not always fair, I promise you, because we make mistakes. But if you'll do that and help their job to be easier, it's a promise from God's Word. You're going to get so blessed. You're going to live so long and you're going to do, a, it's going to be a lot easier for you raising kids next because you learn to honor your, your, your parents. I don't know why I'm stuck on that today, but there I am. It works for husbands and wives because I just want you to see that this is how you get free from that complicated soul. Quit making it so complicated, just do what's right before you. So, Thomas was a half hearted believer, Thomas was a half hearted follower. And Jesus says to him, Stop being an unbeliever and start believing. So I'm going to look at a couple more scriptures about Thomas because John shows us some things about him. So hopefully you can see yourself in the picture of Thomas better. By the way, Thomas, according to church tradition, very, very strong tradition. You know, so strong that I would say, you know, 100% true. This This is true about Thomas. It's not written in the scripture, but... He lived an amazing life after he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, after he began to believe on the Lord Jesus and was filled with the Holy Spirit. He went all the way to India, and some believe all the way to China, and he was martyred in India. And to this day, there are Christians, a very small amount of Christians in India, who to this day claim that their church began with Thomas. He was a very bold witness for the Lord Jesus, in places of the world that still today need that bold witness, but that's when his life changed, when he received the divine revelation. So look at John chapter 11 and verse 14, and I am almost done here. John chapter 11, verse 14. This is when Lazarus died, Jesus didn't show up on time. they thought, Jesus knows what he's doing, though." And verse 14 says, "So Jesus then said to them to the disciples, "Well Jesus said?" Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's asleep, and they think that, that he means he's really asleep, but he, he means that he's dead. And in verse 14, Jesus then says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. See, Thomas is like, If you remember Winnie the Pooh, he's like the Eeyore of everything. Let us also go so that we may die with him. There's something really cool in what he says. Because Thomas is also the only one of them that's ready to die with Jesus. He's he's actually ready to die for Jesus. He doesn't lack courage. But his timing is way off. This isn't the time for Jesus to die. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So, you know, there's this thing of being in the right place at the wrong time, or being in the wrong place at the right time. Thomas's timing is completely off here. Then look at chapter 14. In chapter 14, he comes up again. And everywhere he comes up, we see the same picture. In John 14, where Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus, this famous scripture, is an answer to Thomas. He says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So we see that Thomas is ready to die with Jesus, but he just doesn't understand Jesus' timing. We see that he wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't have any idea where Jesus is going. And those two things really mean a lot to me, because I think that everybody in here this morning, and anybody listening on the Internet, and if you've listened this far into this message, then somewhere down on the inside of you, you really want to follow Jesus. I really want to follow Jesus. And I believe, honestly, in my heart, I, I'm ready to die for Jesus. I've taken up my cross and, 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 and I'm following him. But I know in my life that sometimes this double-mindedness can, can keep me, can keep us from, from, from understanding the timing of Jesus. And our timing can be way off. Have you ever heard somebody sing off key? And, you, and you're not a musician, and you don't know anything even what key means, but still you know it because it's like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. You don't know why that happened. You don't know how to fix it. You can't do any better, but you know there's some kind of disharmony there. And I think that sometimes we're not, we're not walking in harmony with Jesus. And what shalom is, the peace, the very essence of that word is harmony, that we're in harmony with God. It's really the essence of righteousness, that we're in right relationship with God, that we're in step with God, that our timing is not off. And so often we want to follow Jesus, but we don't know where he's going. Well, you cannot follow somebody that you don't know where they're going, right? You can't follow them if you can't see them. And Thomas can't see Jesus. I mean, he sees him physically now. And he thrusts his hand into his side. But he doesn't have that revelation from above. And the scripture says, without that divine revelation, usually we say it, without a vision, the people perish. But literally it says, without a revelation from above, the people are like horses that are unbridled. They're not going anywhere. They're just running around in circles or rolling in the dirt like horses like to do. They're not doing anything. They're not fulfilling their purpose in life. So there's not happiness in their heart. I promise you that I heard this preacher say this many years ago too. I hear these things and I never forget these little phrases. I don't remember the whole sermon. But I remember this preacher saying uh, one time in this kind of small meeting I was in and I can't remember the scripture he was using. But he said the, be- the the greatest blessing that God has for you is located on the other side of your obedience. I never forgot that. I'm afraid to go there because I think it's going to be really hard. But when I get there, I realize, no, this is what makes me really happy. This is what's really right. This is what's really best because this is what Jesus has for me to do. I do not want to be unstable. I do not want to be fickle. I do not want to be picky and panicky and all those kinds of things that we can be with Jesus because that kind of person is a person who's double-minded. And those kind of double-minded ministry activities, double-minded family things, double-minded plans in business, double-minded things anywhere, they do not bear fruit because they're not going anywhere at all. So go back to John 20, and we're going to wrap up here in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and in verse 28. So he says, do not be an unbelieving, but become a believer. Stop being an unbeliever, but be a believer. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I'm going to stop there for just a second. Those words right there, those five words, my Lord and my God. That is the the deepest revelation of who Jesus is that we've heard anywhere in the scripture up to that moment. None of the other, I mean, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But nobody yet has called Jesus Yahweh. No one has said to him, and nobody has made it personal. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Thomas says, my Lord. And my God, he has the greatest revelation of all the disciples up to this point. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed, and you should write your name in there. Sometimes you think, I wish I would have lived back then, or I wish I could see some big miracle, or I wish I could thrust my hand into his side. I wish I had some other thing. The greatest blessing is in not seeing, but believing because of what is written in the Scripture. Then John adds to that, and he makes it clear. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may make Him your personal Lord and God you may have life in his name. The divine revelation comes through this book you have right here and by the Holy Spirit. This book, I promise you, some of you still look at this book and say, that makes my life really complicated. No, this is what makes life simple. This is what makes everything clear. That God opens up his word and reveals his plan for your life. And when Joshua said, he will not forgive your sins, remember we read that? It's kind of shocking to read that. You know, again, Joshua is throwing a gauntlet down. Joshua is challenging them. And when he says that he will not forgive your sins, he's not talking about, he won't forgive your sins if you follow me, if you follow Jesus. What he's talking about that if you reject Jesus, if you turn away from Jesus, if you walk away from him, there is no forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus. It's an absolute lie and false doctrine that there's no hell. There is a hell. There is a lake of fire. It's an absolute lie that God loves the entire world and so everybody somehow, way is going to get saved and it doesn't really matter what you think about God. There are many ways to God. No, there aren't. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So don't, like we were talking about last week, believe the lie. Don't find comfort in a lie because, in the end, it's not going to bring any comfort, is what Joshua is saying. There won't be forgiveness at the end of that lie. Just come to Jesus right here, right now, and make a decision. How long can you keep walking on two different crutches? You're going nowhere. So make a decision to follow him. And that decision is a decision that you make today. Make that decision today. And then make it tomorrow. Because when tomorrow comes, guess what? It's called today. And when the next day comes, the next week comes, that's also called today. So make today and every day the decision in the little things I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to do what you're calling to me to do. Some of you are being challenged with some things that seem really big to you right now. And I'm just saying this by the Holy Spirit. I don't... God didn't tell me anything like, I know this or I know that. But there's some things that you believe the Lord is leading into you. I mean, it may be something so simple as I want to get involved with the worship team or children's ministry or something like that. I, you know, and I, and, and I just don't think that I can do that. I don't think I can... Stand up before people or do this thing or do that thing. Whatever the challenge is, embrace that. Because I promise you the blessing is going to be on the other side of that obedience. And I also promise you that if you keep doubting about it and you won't go forward with God, that you're not going to go anywhere except just wear a rut into the ground that turns into a grave eventually and they pile dirt on top of you and say you're dead and you never did what you really wanted to do in life. When I was about 20, let's see, how old was I? Well, I don't know, 24, 20. I can't remember anymore, I'm getting so old. But like 25, maybe. Oh, that was, uh, actually, I was, yeah, 25. And um, I was really believed that the Lord was calling me to go on the mission field. And I, I just really knew that the Lord was calling me to go on the mission field and uh but i was not on the mission field <laughs> and and uh in, anyway i didn't see any way to get from point a to point b now i was in ministry and uh youth ministry in a church and things i i saw i mean there's no way i can get from here to where i want to be and i remember i had a a meeting with this pastor and uh he invited me to lunch uh, because I knew him re- really well through a friend, he wasn't my pastor, but he was my friend's pastor, and uh, I had fellowshiped with him and shared some things with him. And he said he wanted to have lunch with me. And he was an older guy, and uh, when we had lunch, um, he asked me, you know, what what, what dreams do you have in your heart? What is it that you want to do? What's the Lord put in your heart that you want to do in your life? And so I told him some things that I knew about or that I felt, and he said, Well, what are you doing to get that accomplished? How are you going to get from point A to point B? I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, you better start figuring that out. And I said, yeah, I I want to figure that out, (laughs) but I don't know what to do. He said, here's what you do. You take the step that's right in front of you. Do what God's calling you to do today. Do what he's telling you to do today. And he's going to lead you one step at a time. And he said, because, and this is the part that really stuck with me. He said, because what you do not want is to retire someday, sit in a rocker, on a porch, and think about all the regrets that you wish when you were young and you had the energy you would have obeyed God because then it's going to be too late. So obey him today, and if it fails, then get up and wipe the dust off of your clothes and go on to the next thing. But don't be guilty of not trying to serve the Lord at least. Don't be guilty of being an unbeliever Become a believer. Let me have you stand together. And believe the worship team. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at EarringtonVisionFellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.